and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Why is it raining? Before we talk about our amazing guest, I'm so excited to have her on. I want to introduce our other panelists today. So besides me, Richard Litschauer, hello, everyone. Can't pronounce my own name. We have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. It's great to be here today. And Justin Dorfman. I thought you butchered your name, but yeah. Hi. How are you? Thank you, Justin. All right. And (laughs) our guest today is none other than Stormy Peters. Stormy Peters is joining us from her home in Colorado. She is currently the director of the OSPO Open Source Program Office at Microsoft, a very longtime advocate of free and open source software, been in the space forever. I'm so excited to have her input and just conversation today. Stormy, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm super excited to be here talking to you. Awesome. We are too. So I don't even know where to start with you. So maybe let's start at the beginning. How did you get into open source? So it was right before the year 2000, because I remember we thought all the computers were going to stop working. And I had, like I say, like all good engineers, I had gotten promoted into management and I was managing the CDE team. So the user interface for HPUX. And I went to the standards meeting and I discovered that I had a team of 20 something people fixing bugs. And so did IBM and so did Sun. And we were fixing the exact same bugs in different code bases that all did the same thing. And I thought there's got to be a better way to do this. And this was just about the time that Linux was getting popular and they had not one, but two desktops that were popular, GNOME and KDE. And I thought, surely we can collaborate on this like they do. So I ended up working, I always get the order of the companies wrong. It was Helix Code at the time, I believe, working with them to port GNOME to HPX. And that's how I got started in open source software. So not just the beginning of your involvement, but the beginning of all involvement in open source. The um, beginning were you, of time. <laughs> the beginning of time. Yes, uh, but not that long ago. Not that long. Were you in the room when open source became a term? I wasn't personally involved in the free and open source software conversations. It was around that time, though, I think. Cool. So, okay, fast forward a lot of years. A lot of things happen. Linux goes up. Linux goes down. Open source takes over the world. Everyone wins. Back up a bit further. Okay. How did you get involved with the open source program office at Microsoft? So it actually started with the open source program office at HP, because by the time I managed to convince HP that I was not going to copyleft all of HPUX if I put GNOME on HPUX, I had a new job helping the rest of HP figure out how to use open source software and then helping HP's customers. And then I got to go to conferences and meet awesome people in the community. And I was talking about it all over. And I ended up with a career helping companies and communities work well together. I was wondering back then, did you find yourself defending open source more so than today? There was a lot of fear back then. So I I don't think I was defending it. Nobody was attacking it. It was just like, there was a lot of fear of copyleft and making sure that we knew what we were doing and that we were doing it the right way. Did you ever think in a million years, Microsoft would be in the position they are now of how much they've given back to open source? I would like to think that I hoped they would be, but I doubt I did. I'd like to joke now that I think Microsoft's first contribution to open source was being the common enemy because they helped a lot of us (laughs) work well together. That's actually a good point. They did play a role in that. So one more question, just back it up a little. When you were working on debugging all the code with all the different companies and then Office Space came out, were you like, oh, wow, that was like my life? I think there's a lot of truth and a lot of stereotypes. 
So we could talk to you for ages about open source. And I feel like you've already given a lot of talks on that. And that's definitely a thing that's around. I'm really curious how you feel about sustain as an organization, not like how it's sustained, but like our core theme and our goal for this show, which we often forget, or at least I forget, is to talk about how do we sustain open source in the long haul? How do we move it so that it's sustainable? And so I'm curious, you've seen open source grow from very beginning, working with a few companies, just trying to work on a few different things. So now being a global movement where people dedicate their lives to open source and really spend all of their thought process figuring it out. What has that process been like for you? How has it been to see the change from just being a licensing issue to being a culture? I think it's still evolving and I think it always will evolve. And so I think it's important that all of us continue to think about it and figure out what the the new models look like. We've seen it evolve in the last 20 years from something people did as volunteers and really hoped to get a job in to something where most people are paid and the types of organizations that are involved and the types of people that are involved have all changed. And I think we just need to make sure it continues to be a place that welcomes everybody where everybody can collaborate And there's going to be continuously new models for how we work together. And and we need to be conscious of that and be welcoming of the new ways and make sure they work for everybody. Do you think that most people are paid for open source? I think a much larger majority than before get paid to work on open source. That's interesting because I think I don't know the numbers for GitHub for how many users they have. Do you have any idea? Last time I heard it's like 40 million. Yeah, it's huge. And it's growing really fast. And it's a very global number too, which is really fun. And GitHub isn't an exact number for the global community of open source people, but it's as close as we're going to get right now. I mean, it's a pretty good metric, sort of deduplicating GitLab and other open source areas. So 40 million, to me, that seems like a lot of people. So maybe when you say like they get paid to do open source, they get paid to do open source in some capacity, not full time, but in some way they're getting money. Yes. And I think there's also a nuance that we need to be really careful of as we start new projects and work on them is how many people there are getting paid full-time and are you still allowing those that aren't full-time on it to have a meaningful role? So I know like when I was at Mozilla, we consciously thought about this with Firefox OS, like having people full-time on it and even more than full-time as they worked extra hours to try to get out the door. Could you still welcome people that only had two or three hours a week to work on it? So All those 40 million are probably not working 40 hours a week. So do you count them all equally? How do you weigh for that differently? I I don't know. Yeah, there's also some that are not necessarily coders. Like they're just part of a company and either they have to use the project boards. I've seen that in a few organizations that I was at. But overall, it's still like you're in the world of open source. I've never thought that open source was just like a developer's thing. It's There's artists, there are people that do documentation and all that other stuff. So it's just cool to see that number go up and not just in the United States, but just like worldwide. I think that's really- I do have a, a question. I, I'd like to learn more about Microsoft and their approach, but before so, I just want to point out your history. I'm looking on LinkedIn at your work history and you essentially are the quintessential leader in open source. You were the executive director at the GNOME Foundation. You were the director of Mozilla Developer Network at Mozilla, director of the board of directors for the Software Freedom Conservancy, and the list goes on and on, up until Red Hat, where you were the senior manager for uh, community leads. 
And then you join Microsoft. All of those jobs beforehand were very centric to open source, to, to all of this. And then you go to Microsoft, which really does not have that history. There's still a lot of skepticism in the world about Microsoft, as we all know. As a developer, we all know anybody who has been a developer for over 10 years knows that Microsoft, we've had a love-hate relationship. And then over the past five years, they've just kind of come out of nowhere. Maybe the past 10 years, they've come out of nowhere and all of a sudden they're the shining hero. But they're still a big corporation with a board, with investors and all of that. Now, Microsoft recently purchased GitHub. They are sponsoring the development of VS Code, which is the best editor in the world. So the question I have for you, and that's a big lead up, but the question I have for you is what was the overall mentality when you got there regarding supporting open source and how has that changed since you've been there? Yeah. So to go back to the question about my career, that it looked like it changed with this last move. I don't think it did. To me, this was the next step in the path. My career has been about helping open source software communities and companies in those communities working well together. I want open source software to succeed, and I think companies play a role in that. I had this interesting discussion about those of us like to like like to interpret between two different worlds, but I, I feel like I interpret often between legal and developers and open source and proprietary software. Like it's an interpretation bringing people together type role. Microsoft, I think, is ideally positioned to like make the next big change in open source software. I was skeptical too when they reached out to me and I talked to a lot of people and I interviewed a lot of people and I asked a lot of questions. They seemed at the time very genuinely welcoming of open source software, especially with Satya becoming the CEO. The culture has changed a lot to helping individuals and organizations achieve more. And I like to add through open source to that because it fits really nice. Good. Yeah. And since I've been there, it's it's been true. Like they don't always know how to do things best in open source. Like we're still going through a cultural change across all the different groups, but people are very open to it. Everyone that I've asked to meet with meets with me, talks to me, is willing to walk through stuff. There is a lot of support for open source software, VS Code and TypeScript and .NET. That's genuine support. And then I think Microsoft is positioned because you know, it's a software company that creates developer tools that will then influence others. And the number of big companies that are Microsoft customers who've asked to talk to me about OSPOs and open source policies is amazing. So it's a place where I can make a, a bigger impact helping open source software. From the outside looking in, in, you can look at graphs of Microsoft's contributions to open source and Azure's profits year by year. And you see there's a direct correlation. So for them to kind of say, eh, we're done with this open source stuff, they're giving up on massive profits and not saying that's the only reason they do it, but that's the reason where they can easily go to their investors and get on a call with investor relations and say, yeah, we're giving a lot of software away, but look at all these Azure revenue. So I really appreciate your answer. I'd like to talk a little bit hypothetically now. Let's say... As a, an example of this question, I have been an Apple user for ever. While well, I was standing in line for nine hours to get the original iPhone, I've been an iPhone user ever since. And because of that, I've slowly built up my life around this Apple ecosystem. And I've realized over the past few years, like, I am trapped. I can't get out. There's no way I can get out. And I think that's by design with them. So let's fast forward maybe five years in Microsoft, and Microsoft is really providing the developers what they need. Just as you said, I'm a developer of 20 years, what I love to do, and I use a lot of the tools. 
Now, in five years, I expect that many developers like myself will have their whole development environment online using the code spaces and using the Microsoft tools that are provided because you're just making it so damn easy. So what happens in five years when all of a sudden our whole development environment is on Microsoft platform, our tooling is Microsoft platform, most of the stuff is Microsoft. Are we going to get locked in? And is that going to cause the same type of negative frustration as I am with Apple right now? So I certainly hope not. And I think by building it in open source, we're preventing that. So it's my job, extended team's job to make sure that Microsoft does open source well. And part of us being successful in open source is making sure we have active communities around our projects that are broader than us so that the projects are broader than us so that we're not creating that lock-in. I have a very similar question. Right now, the world is very unequal. And again, these are really tough questions. And I'm sorry, but it's just such a wonderful opportunity to talk to someone who's thought about them longer than we have. So the world is really not equal and there's a lot of money going towards the 1%. And that's a big issue. And I think we all know Microsoft is a huge corporation. And so I worry that open source is one way to combat inequality. It's one way where you can have people work together and work for free on really awesome tools where, you know, if I wanted to go code something, I can go do it most of the time as an independent developer. I don't need to have a giant workforce anymore. I can do stuff with code as an independent person because of open source, which is one of the reasons I love open source so much. I worry that centralization in corporate open source will lead to sort of a, a watered down effect where it will be harder for independent developers to do that. Sort of like the lock-in question, right? If all the tools are owned by Microsoft, how will that affect my development? At the same time, how will it affect the open source ecosystem if very large corporations become the main stakeholders in open source and say direct the projects that I love in their own ways or influence projects, licenses in their own ways? Well, what would you say to that? I think it has to come back to the conversation we we're having earlier that we need to make sure we have communities that are welcoming of all types of people, the individuals, the small companies, the large companies. And we definitely want to do that. I've gotten a couple of questions just in the past week from Microsoft folks who are relatively new to their open source project, and they want to know how to pay the people that are working on it. And I think that's really awesome. So we've had conversations yeah. about how do we create that opportunity there for them to also benefit from the project? So we have to consciously watch and pay attention and make sure we're growing these things in the right way. Besides GitHub sponsors, what are some ways that they are able to pay these folks? Or is it just kind of a discussion that's happening? It is always an ongoing discussion. So there's definitely GitHub sponsors. Microsoft uses a, a program called FOSFUND that Dwayne O'Brien at Indeed started, where we let employees pick a project every month to give them 10,000. And the idea is not that's going to be enough money to support them forever, but we just want to recognize some of the projects that we're using that aren't getting a lot of funding in other ways. So we've given money to like a screen reader that we use, a screen reader for visually impaired. We've given money to home automation system. But that's just one way to let employees nominate something that maybe we haven't noticed yet. We also give money to the foundations that support these projects. The foundations like Apache Foundation, Eclipse Foundation should be supporting it. The other way that I think that large companies can influence the ecosystems around the projects they create is by making sure they grow. I'm going to reuse the word ecosystem, but they grow the ecosystem. And I like to point back to the example when Nokia started MIMO, which maybe wasn't necessarily a success but they paid a bunch of contracting companies to do work. 
And I think you still see those companies today. So you have CodeThink and Egalia and a couple other ones in Germany. Those companies started doing contract work for an open source software project. And now they work on open source software projects and other projects in general. I think it's safe to say that a lot of other OSPO managers uh, and directors and I just want to know how much impact has Dwayne's program, Boss Fund, made in the way you operate and the rest of the bigger OSPOs out there? So I don't know at the moment how many OSPOs use it, but there's a regular meeting. I think it happens in Slack. Slack's not my favorite tool, but it happens in Slack. There's four or five companies that regularly meet to talk about it, and they all do it in different ways. There, there might be more by now. I think Dwayne's a good thinker. Like he also, when COVID started, he started an effort to raise money for the events that were impacted. So I hope that's empowering to a lot of people that one person can have a good idea, notice a need and get people involved. Boss Responders is really awesome. We just gave the rest of our money to outreach, which is really excited, or at least that's in the process. By the time this will be aired, that'll probably have been what happened. Really excited to see that go. And just Dwayne in general is a great thinker. So... You mentioned GitHub sponsored. We mentioned the FOSS fund. Those are financial ways of giving back, which is excellent. And we could talk more about the ecosystem models and going down through the depth tree, and maybe we'll get to that in a minute. I'm curious what you are doing at Microsoft to help other non-financial ways of supporting communities and building great open source ecosystems of communities. Usually when we think about giving to open source, you think about money, you think about resources, and you think about people, which I hate to call resources, although sometimes we refer to them as resources. So we talked about the money. On the resources side, I would say probably the main way that Microsoft is giving back was by acquiring GitHub and continuing to offer that service, but also through Azure credits. So we're unofficially giving Azure credits to a number of open source software projects. I'm trying to launch an official program by which people can apply to get Azure credits. Yeah, whether it's just to do their builds or whether it's to make sure stuff runs on Azure, we just want to be able to make that available to open source software projects. And then third is people. And we have a lot of Microsoft employees who work on projects on GitHub. I think it's definitely over 30,000 Microsoft employees have linked their Microsoft identity to their GitHub identity. And that's a voluntary action. So there could be more that haven't officially told us they're that person. And so there's people working on it. And as part of the open source programs office, we are trying to actively encourage people to contribute back to the projects we depend on. So we're trying to create programs and culture change and anything we can to get people more actively involved. 30,000 is a huge number. I mean, I don't know how many employees you have. I'm guessing somewhere in the order of 100,000, probably more. At that point, the OSPO becomes a behemoth because if you're trying to talk to 30,000 people, that takes a lot of effort. It can't just be you. It has to be more than one person. And I'm wondering about the resources that you have, which go out to all these employees, which they must look at. There must be a website internally for what open source is at Microsoft. Is any of that shared anywhere? Is there a way that people can look at those resources for companies that are smaller than Microsoft to learn about how an OSPO works? Yeah, so we're not a behemoth. We're pretty small, relatively speaking, OSPO. There's about six of us. And then we have an open source engineering team that builds the tools, which is bigger. And then we have a legal open source team and a team at Azure. So we're not huge. But when I came to Microsoft, it's very apparent that Microsoft is a software company. It's all in tooling. It's all what developers would love. It's not very manual. So you build... Software at Microsoft, it automatically detects the open source software and starts to do a bunch of good stuff. As far as how you can see what we're doing, if you go to opensource.microsoft.com, there's a link at the top that says our programs. 
And there you can see part of our policy. We've shared quite a bit of our internal open source software policy. There's a link to the GitHub where we have our OSPO, some of our OSPO tools that we've open sourced. We're working on open sourcing more of them. So you can see what we've shared so far there and, and we're trying to share more. So OSPOs are awesome and they're everywhere now. We're seeing them all over the place, popping up at every company that's larger than 500 people or so. The to-do group is obviously a big part of that. I know Microsoft is a member of the to-do group, which is great. One of the things I'm curious about is because of another community that I run called OSPO Plus, where do you see the role for OSPOs for universities, for governments, for cities, for anything that's not like a large corporation? I actually think that's a hot topic right now, to be honest with you. I think a lot of NGOs, nonprofits, universities are thinking about OSPOs right now. So I'd love to hear what you think. Darn. Okay. Good answer. Yeah. There's a whole ton of things. I think it's, it's a really useful construct for helping companies work together with other people. It's really hard to work with 30,000 developers at Microsoft. I could ping a developer every day of the week and be like, hey, do you want to work in this project? And I'm only going to get to 30,000 if I do one day a week in a long time. Whereas if I have an OSPO, it's much easier to collaborate and say, okay, you should talk to that team. You should talk to that team. And I think with universities and cities, it's also very similar. What I really like about it is that particularly with civic stuff, you can have participation by a lot of other people so they can get involved. And citizens can be like, oh, this is my city. These are my services. On that note, how does your OSPO and how does open source at Microsoft interface with large communities of people that may not necessarily be directly in line with Microsoft's goals? So how do you deal with things like, I don't know, Outreachy or Google Summer of Code or other communities that are sort of secondary and just part of the community in general? What do you do to support those? So for Outreachy, we support them financially, just straight out support them. And then we also have interns through Outreachy. So it really just depends on the project. And it's sometimes it's across Microsoft. Like for Outreachy, support comes from multiple different groups, all of who want to participate. And I just put up, having run a nonprofit, I just like to tell the nonprofits out there when large company approaches you from two different places, if you could tell them about each other, that's super helpful to us. <laughs> I was trying not to talk too much. I could talk all day about hospitals and universities. So I just don't think it's really relevant to hear me talk too much. So uh, I, I have a very unrelated question. Do you ever see Scott Hanselman walking around? I never see him walking around, but I see him in video calls all the time. So I that saw him one cool guy. Really cool guy. I like him. Cool. That was just a comment. Who's he, Eric? Scott Hanselman. If you watch the latest Microsoft event conference, he did a, I think he was a keynote and he basically just went through it and walked around his house and sat down and started doing stuff on his computer. And in this whole process, he very casually demonstrated the power of Microsoft's tooling. And I thought that was so fantastic, so much so that I even tried to migrate my development environment over to Windows. Didn't work very well, but I see that happening in the future. He was also a co-chair for OzCon. He has like a podcast. He's very active, I think, on Stack Overflow. Like he's just the developer's developer. And you should have him on the podcast. He'd be fun. Can you hook that up? Oh, yeah, I would love that. Hook it up. Speaking <laughs> of the future. Where do you think open source is going? What are the major themes? Going to leave this very open-ended. Take it where you want it. I think if you'd asked me that like 20 years ago, I would not have realized that copyleft would drop out of importance as much as it has. You remember when copyleft was like super important and that was how we were going to get everything to be open source. And now like Microsoft preferred licenses MIT and we're not worried about people taking that internal and stealing our stuff. It's really changed. So I don't know if I would make an accurate prediction, but I hope it's to continue to make 
not only to make more software available to more people, but to make it more possible for people that aren't in tech careers to write code and make computers do what they need them to do. That more people can program, that's not quite the right, program their phone or their TV or their thing to do what they want it to do, that they understand what technology and software can do and that they have tools just readily available to them. Do you think Clearly Defined has a part in that ecosystem? I think Clearly Defined's role is, is helping companies use it safely. I don't know if it'll bring those tools to individuals or to non-programmers. Why do you think that uh, Copy Left has dropped out of the parlance so much? Like, Why has it been minimized? I think it's because the fear has dropped out. In the beginning, it was fear that I was going to have to open source something I didn't want to and fear that somebody was going to take my stuff and take advantage of my stuff. And I think we've seen that it's not really useful. If you write something awesome, I'll just use it and I don't need to take it inside my company and tweak it myself to do something different. Like there's not an advantage to that. And I think people finally realized that. I, I didn't explain that very well, but I think we, we didn't see that stealing yeah, we've have had a few lawsuits, you know, cleared stuff up, but there hasn't been widespread stealing of software. I think that's what Microsoft's initial fear was in the beginning was the GPL and the copy left movement. And I think as time went on after 98, once the OSI and OSD were defined, I think they were more happy to join up. I would say companies' main concern around GPL now is just making sure their people comply with it. It's not a fear of copylifting everything. It's more of we need to make sure we provide source code in the right spot and that our customers can find it for as long as we're shipping this thing. Speaking of fear, and this is the tough question. So ethical source is a new movement that's taken a lot more traction recently. And it's come from the idea that maybe people who use our code should use it ethically. And GitHub has famously signed a contract with ICE and ICE uses some code that's available on GitHub. And Microsoft, of course, has done a lot of work with say, the Pentagon and the Army. I'm curious how you see that progressing. Do you see open source continuing to be a major player with a lot of people saying, well, it doesn't matter how it's used, it's fine, it's still open source? Or do you see ethical source as being a movement that will eventually sort of cause the same tensions that GPL used to cause? I think it's really difficult. I completely understand that if you write something, you don't want it used in a cause that you think is causing evil in the world. Like I completely understand that. I just struggle with not providing good technology is going to solve the problem. Am I going to make the problem better? If ICE doesn't have good technology, will that actually make it better for immigrants? Won't I just make their life more miserable? Like won't they lose more people if they don't have good technology? Like, I, I don't know. Like I don't have an answer. I just don't think we're going to solve it by trying to hold technology back from certain people. I do hope we solve the problem of evil in the world and that we make the world a better place. But I, maybe I'm an op, just an optimist, but I like making the world a better place by providing better solutions and better technology. And I, I don't think you can just offer it to some people and not others. Yeah, I would agree with that on the surface. I, there's a lot more we can go into there, but I really... That's a tough topic. That's probably best after three or four hours, maybe at the bar later. So <laughs> moving on into another thing about making the world better. We talked earlier about dependency trees, where I just slowly dropped it in there. And obviously you have the FOSS fund, which gives back to certain developers who you think need it, which means that you've already realized that they're around. I wonder if Microsoft has a mapping of what resources Microsoft has used, of what code is in your system, what open source packages you depend on, and how are you actively working towards giving back to them all as a whole, cohesively down the stack, as opposed to very large, flamboyant 
projects. Do you have any answer to that? It's something we continue to work on. So we do support open source software nonprofit foundations that we think are supporting projects that are important to the ecosystem. I can tell you, I mean, I can't tell you off the top of my head on a Friday afternoon, but I could tell you the 90,000 components that Microsoft is using. I could not easily at this point map them to the exact repo. That Name them all, please. Just go down. We have time. Yes, I'll just start scrolling in the notes, right? And, and we are actively looking at how do we make sure we're supporting the ones that are important? And it's important from supporting the ecosystem, the people that write that software. It's important from a security perspective to make sure that software has good support behind it. So we are actively working on that. You see Google really stepping up their efforts on supply chain attacks. They just recently gave Python a $350,000 grant for tightening things up. So I see, especially after the whole SolarWinds supply chain attacks are really going to be a focus on making sure that all vulnerabilities are identified and not made to happen anymore. Well, I mean, it's going to happen again, but just less. And making sure that everyone's resourced to respond to them, which includes the, the projects themselves. I really want to thank you for being on the show. You're super busy and you're really important to the community. You're really important to those things that we hold near and dear. And we appreciate your time and what you do. What is on the forefront of your team's mind right now? Our goal is to make sure that Microsoft business units can use open source software in their strategy, that they can consume open source, that they can open source things, that they have all the tools and knowledge they need to do that. Our focus right now is on the cultural change. So making sure that there's less imposter syndrome about contributing back, like they really can contribute back. And then it's really okay to make a non-Microsoft person a maintainer on the super important project that Microsoft maintains. So it's making sure that culture change is pervasive across Microsoft. So we've recruited open source champs from across Microsoft to help us in all the different groups. We bring them together regularly. We give them the tools and knowledge they say they need, and we're trying to spread that. Where can people follow these efforts and where can people follow you? So you can follow our efforts on opensource.microsoft.com. There's also an open source blog. We put the link in the, the notes. I would say I'm, I haven't been blogging a whole lot myself lately. I, I have a lot of theories. I could go on a whole nother hour about blogging and Twitter and Facebook, but Twitter would probably be the best place. And what's your handle on Twitter? Storming. Like it's storming outside. Love it. Thank you so much. Before we wrap up, we want to make sure we give back to contributors in our own little way. So this is the section called Spotlight, where we basically mention projects that have helped us out in the past, that have gotten us to where we are, or just projects that just need a little love and attention. Or in Eric's case, often just things we like this week. So Eric, what's your Spotlight today? I could talk about open source projects, and I'm very grateful for all of those. But today I'm going to focus on something different. For all of you listeners who might be a little bit on the heavy side, like, like myself, might not have as good of health habits. Maybe you were like me one day and you tried this thing called kombucha and you thought it was the nastiest thing. It smelled like vinegar and pee, right? It was just horrible. <laughs> well, my sweet wife decided that I'm going to get healthy. And so she started buying this stuff for me. And it's the only drink I've ever had where I drink it and my stomach immediately feels better. So I do recommend it. It's kombucha. And I recommend the Kavita brand, K-E-V-I-T-A, because it doesn't taste gross. That's the biggest part. So that will be my spotlight for this week. Always percolating on something. Thank you so much. Justin, what's your spotlight? Jekyll Admin. I've been porting our security fence.io site from 
Webflow, which was there before I joined, over to Jekyll and getting people bought in to write blog posts in just Markdown is just not that great. So this is kind of like a WYSIWYG deal that they can easily update blog posts without having to open up a text editor. So thanks to the team at Jekyll Admin. You can find them on Open Collective. Awesome. Thank you so much. My spotlight today is Carl Brittinger. Carl Brittinger is an assistant professor in environmental science policy and management at Berkeley. And he had a thing called science blogs, and this is an open science notebooks. And open science blogging really helped me out as a grad student. I remember being so excited that people were actually blogging about what they were doing. And I was reading other people's blog and I learned a ton of methods for doing science, a ton of ways to publish. And it was just really cool, the idea that you can actually science in the open. It doesn't have to be locked in a room and then coming out in just journals, but you could actually talk about what you're doing every day and get feedback from people. It's kind of like open source, very similar methodologies. It's part of what got me into open source because I saw this happening in code. And I'm like, oh, I've already done this for science stuff. This is the same. And I was just thinking about that today and just remembering how cool that whole movement was and is. And Carl's one of the people who I wanted to give a shout out to, although he may never hear this podcast. I'm just grateful. So thank you. And Stormy, what about your spotlight? I would call out educational software projects. So like things like Khan Academy and Internet in a Box. I started a nonprofit with friends a long time ago that we take computers to kids in developing countries and getting them educational software that will teach them things because sometimes their teachers haven't gone to college. Being able to, to take that software and put it in a box, like Internet in a Box puts the Internet in a box. You can put Khan Academy on the box. You can take all of that knowledge to them is pretty amazing. And I think it's relevant to all of us now as we all have kids at home that are trying to learn. And I think all the projects that I probably don't even know about that are trying to make online learning better is something we should all pay attention to. So if you see a project that's doing good stuff, help spread the word. And if you could also spread the word about Microsoft's open source, because that's another project that's doing good stuff, largely due to Stormy's leadership. Stormy, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It was a real honor and privilege to talk to you. Also a joy. And I just am really appreciative and hope to see you around, as I'm sure we will in the future at Talks and Things. Thanks again. Thanks, Stormy. Thanks for having me. It was fun.